Hey guys, it's Ashley and Bianca. We're Creep It Real. Let's get to business. <laughs> Today we're discussing Project Blue Book and the UFO phenomena. Uh, that's a little something I never know what to say. I think, On? It's, I think it's phenomena. Phenomena? Because it's multiple. multiple. And, you know, looking into it in a more sort of scientific way, or maybe we could just say the most skeptical way possible. Mm-hmm. Of the UFO phenomenon, the official statement from the Air Force is the description of the object or its motion cannot be correlated with any known object or phenomenon. So for those of you who don't know, Project Blue Book was a series of systematic studies of unidentified flying objects conducted by none other than what Ashley just said. (laughs) <laughs> the U.S. Air Force. <laughs> I have a good way of ruining everything, don't I? <laughs> so Blue Book had three goals. First was to, de- to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security. Second was to scientifically analyze any UFO-related data. And I think all of that should be put into quotation marks because I don't know that that was actually the case, right. to be honest with you. Right. They were to determine if UFOs exhibit any advanced technology which the U.S. could utilize, which is a little audacious, because if that's the case, what makes you think that you're getting your lowly human mitts on it just because you're studying them? Yeah. Yeah. So it all started in 1952, and a termination order was given for the study and all activity under its auspices in December of 1969. All activity ceased officially. In January of 1970. Supposedly. Yeah. (laughs) Thousands of U.S. reports, 12,618 to be exact, were collected, analyzed, and filed under the project, and it was determined that there was nothing anomalous about UFOs. The Project Blue Book officers were stationed at every Air Force base in the nation, and they were responsible for investigating all the reported sightings and getting reports to the Blue Book headquarters at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Shout out Dayton, Ohio. (laughs) All right. That's where I was stationed. You're such a little name dropper. (laughs) Who are you trying to get in with here? (laughs) Nobody. I'm not in the Air Force anymore. (laughs) Thank goodness. (laughs) So, however, the U.S. Because. What? (laughs) Then you probably wouldn't. Live here. That's why. Well, yeah. I don't mean to be like, yeah, oh. you know. I mean, I'm glad you're not in the military regardless, to be honest. <laughs> you're glad I'm here with you. Yeah, yeah. So, however, the United States Air Force gives the following summary of its investigations. The bulk of the investigations, as interpreted by Blue Book officials, was that most people see what is not actually extraterrestrial crafts, but bright stars, balloons, satellites, comets, fireballs, conventional aircraft, moving clouds, vapor trails, chemtrails, <laughs> reflections, <laughs> mirages, searchlights, birds, kites, spurious radar indications, fireworks, and the last one, flares. Okay. Just about every possible thing that could be in the sky, mm-hmm. other than something that we can't explain. Right. No UFO reported, investigated, and evaluated by the Air Force was ever an indication of threat to our national security. There was no evidence submitted to or discovered by the Air Force that sightings categorized as unidentified represented technological developments or principles beyond the range of modern scientific Uh, knowledge. I call bullshit on that already. (laughs) And there was no evidence indicating that sightings categorized as unidentified were extraterrestrial vehicles. Of course, you can't ever... (laughs) <laughs> it, <Do> was, <laughs> it was It was concluded that most of them were misidentifications of natural phenomena, which 
Ashley just listen up. Can I just say this? <laughs> if you're an experienced pilot who flies around in the skies all the time, you don't you don't know what clouds are. Yeah, what are the chances that you see fucking clouds and planets and other things in the sky on a daily basis that you're not going to just be like this is a cloud. You're going to you're going to go make up make a fool of yourself to all your little friends. Yeah. Yeah. Saying you saw something crazy in the oh, sky. Boys. Give me a break. I'm going to <laughs> okay, I'm worked up already. Here we are. According to the National Reconnaissance Office, a number of the reports could be explained by flights of the formerly secret reconnaissance planes U-2 and A-12. A small percentage of UFO reports were classified as unexplained even after stringent analysis, and of the 12,618 reported sightings, only 701 are still classified as unidentified. I did the math. That's about 5%. Which, like, that's still <laughs> yeah something to be... There's something to be said for yeah. 701 unclass- unidentified Absolutely. sightings. The UFO reports were archived and are available under the Freedom of Information Act, but names and other personal information of all witnesses have been redacted. I did read the actual file. There's a literal whole page that's just... Black. Black. <laughs> What's new? <laughs> but many people, myself included, felt the good old Air Force wasn't divulging all it knew and was presenting a really well-crafted presentation to the public, which who would have thought? Right. So it all started with Kenneth Arnold, but we're going to get into that in just a moment. So before we do, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that were going on during World War II. There is a well-known story about a war correspondent's interview with an Air, Vor- Air Force major on VE Day, which was the day that all Allied forces celebrated their victory in Europe in 1942, where the major told a number of stories to journalists about what he called flying saucers. He said, suddenly they'd be on our wing, six or eight of them, flying perfect formation. The major told the skeptical newsman, you turn and bank, they turn and bank. You climb, they climb. You dive, they dive. You just couldn't shake them. Little dirty gray aluminum things, 10 or 12 feet in diameter, shaped just like saucers. No cockpits, no windows, no sign of life. When the things got tired of the game, they would just take off into space and disappear, flying at the most incredible speeds, 5,000 miles an hour or more. Which, that sounds pretty incredible. Who knows what those are? The war correspondent, (laughs) though, was skeptical of the major story and brought his skepticism to the Shafe G2. I don't know. It's the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary. (laughs) This is, here we go again. Expeditionary (laughs) Force Intelligence Officer. Uh, Like we've talked about in Operation Paperclip, can we cut those down a little? (laughs) Because you just, I I feel like you're just trying to sound too important for your own good. Who, this Shafe G2, confirmed he knew about the the reports of the flying saucers and that they were so extremely secret that they were in an eyes-only file for Mm. very select people. During World War II, a battleship New York headed for Iwo Jima on a campaign, and they saw a large, round, metallic object overhead about the size of a two-story house. Officers on the ship could not make out what it was. They brought their three-inch guns into action, but the guns just couldn't seem to reach what they were 
calling a balloon. The three-inch guns? I don't really understand that. (laughs) I have no idea what that means. The New York's destroyer then began shooting at the object with its five-inch guns. Oh, the big ones. (laughs) (laughs) And they also could seem to do no damage to the balloon, quote-unquote. At that point, the navigator, who had been asleep, woke up and after doing some calculations, told the captain, Sir, if it were possible to see Venus at this time of day, it would be exactly where that balloon is. Okay. Uh. <laughs> so after a while, these unidentified objects began to be known as foos among pilots. Not to use the Cholo terminology, foo. <laughs> What's up, foo? Oh, that. Okay. <laughs> also, this little Venus story is going to po- make its appearance later on. It's just, it seems to be a popular theory for flying saucers mm-hmm. for some reason. Okay. So often on bombing missions, pilots would see strange lights that followed their bombers. And sometimes these foos darted around, and other times they seemed to fly in formation. I literally can't stop thinking about <laughs> God, you and Adore Delano can go sit on a cloud and talk about this, but I'm talking about flying saucers, all right? Uh, Several pilots reported seeing Foo Fighters during combat. The rumors around the barracks were that these Foo Fighters were just another Nazi secret weapon, but in the entire war, not one single glowing craft was ever shot down or captured, but at the same time, there was not one report of one of these crafts harming or causing damage to any aircraft or personnel so if it were a nazi secret weapon what was its objective other than maybe collecting data which just doesn't seem like the nazi way no while the foos were seen far and wide eventually the air force officially stated that they never actually existed or they were hallucinations hallucinations (laughs) who am i carol burnett i don't even know if that's what should (laughs) but regardless they were shared by a shit ton of people oh and i just find that to be Kind of funny. Silly. Yes. However, there were many Allied pilots that kept meticulous detail of their sightings. And they had begun to theorize that the things were being operated by some kind of intelligent control. And if you're going to ask somebody, you should probably ask the people who are actually encountering these things on a regular basis Mm -hmm. and not their bosses sitting in an office somewhere being skeptical and not wanting to make the Air Force look stupid. When the strange crafts began to be sighted all around Sweden in 1946, there was a little bit of hysteria that spread over Europe. With concerns, these were just some kind of new Nazi war weapon that had been lying in wait to cause ultimate destruction. Except, with all the coverage, no harm was ever reported to have been caused, so that was obviously not the case. The Daily Mail sent an investigator to look into the sightings, and he found that all the witnesses shared the same description. These crafts were shaped like cigars. They shot orange or green flames out of their tails. They traveled at an altitude between 300 and 1,000 meters, and they were about the same speed as an airplane, and they made no noise aside from a slight whistling sound. Mm -hmm. Basically, it was my nose Mm -hmm. flying around. Yeah, for sure. Back in those days, the Air Force almost seemed like it wanted to share with the public what they were discovering up there in the skies, which is a huge shift from what they evolved into after the first big sighting that pretty much started the whole thing, as talking Project Blue Book, which was essentially the official, the Air Force, they officially became the debunker of any and all things UFO. Yeah, absolutely. So, Project Blue Book began as Project Sign in 1947 on the heels of the very first UFO, quote-unquote, flying saucer sighting, which, as we just said, is not necessarily technically true, but continue on. Like Ashley said, preceding Blue Book from 1947 to most of 1948 was the Air Force's, yay, (laughs) project sign, uh, used to investigate unidentified flying objects 
And their final report ended up stating that while some of the UFOs appeared to represent actual aircraft, there was not enough data to determine their origin. Project Sign was initiated by the Technical Intelligence Division Air Material Command under the authority of a letter from the Deputy Chief of Staff. Initially, the opinion of those involved with the project was that UFOs were most likely. The results of the study, which is in stark, which is in stark contrast to what we'll find towards the end of Project Blue Book. The results of the study reviewed in the report are based on data derived from 273 incidents, 30 of which were non-domestic, so which were in other countries. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. No, no my pleasure. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Based on the possibility that the objects really were unidentifiable and unconventional types of aircraft, they made a technical analysis and grouped them into four classifications according to their configurations. First was flying disks with very low aspect ratio aircraft. Torpedo or cigar-shaped bodies with no wings or fins visible in flight, like Ashley just described. Spherical or balloon-shaped objects or balls of light. Mm. I know so many people who have seen balls of light. Mm-hmm. In February of 49, Project Sign completed the evaluation of all 243 UFO sightings that had been submitted to them. And the conclusion of Project Sign was that there was no definite or conclusive evidence yet available to prove or disprove the existence of these unidentified objects as real aircraft of unknown and unconventional configuration. Furthermore, the report states, It is unlikely that positive proof of their existence will be obtained without examination of the remains of crashed objects. After the almost two-year-long project that was called Project Sign came another, also quite short-lived project, called Project Grudge. What are they trying to be? A horror movie? (laughs) (laughs) Project Sign changed to Project Grudge at the request of research and development, but as we've learned by now, these clandestine government programs always change their names so they can distribute money and conduct business without oversight and whatnot. Or also, this one is just a fake sham, in my opinion. So I don't even, I don't even know if they even care. But let's continue. So it succeeded sign in February of 1949 and was intended to investigate UFOs as well. In fact, it was announced that Grudge would simply take over where sign had left off. But Air Force Captain Edward J. Ruppel wrote, In doing this, standard intelligence procedures would be used. This normally means an unbiased evaluation of intelligence data, but it doesn't take a great deal of study of the old UFO files to see that standard intelligence procedures were not being followed by Project Grudge. Everything was being evaluated on the premise that UFOs couldn't exist. No matter what you see or hear, don't believe it. Well, that's some shit. Ruppelt also noted that some of ATIC's top intelligence specialists who had been eager to work on sign were no longer going to be working on grudge. Some of them had drastically and hurriedly changed their minds about UFOs when they had learned that the Pentagon was no longer sympathetic to the UFO cause. Critics charged that from its formation, grudge was operating under a debunking directive. All UFO reports were judged to have prosaic explanations, though little research was conducted, and some of grudge's quote-unquote explanations were strained or even logically untenable. In his 1956 book, Edward J. Ruppel would describe Grudge as the dark ages of United States Air Force UFO investigation. 
Grudge's personnel were in fact conducting little or no investigation while simultaneously relating that all UFO reports were being thoroughly reviewed. Ruppelt additionally reported that the word grudge was chosen deliberately by the anti-saucer elements in the Air Force. Yeah, that's just, I will burn your houses down. <laughs> it's not fair. No, it isn't. Mm -mm. Of the 244 incidents submitted, seven are excluded from all statistical reckoning. One is identified in the subject report as a hoax. Three were duplicated and three contain zero information. Which is sketchy. Mm -hmm. Why would they block out all of that stuff? Every single bit. So now, let's go into some consistent points in the reports of unidentified objects from Grudge. Most reports were made by pilots, non-flying officers, professional men, government employees, housewives, and other what they deemed dependable people. About 79% of people who reported on the number of objects seen said that they had only seen one object. About half of the people specifying the time they saw the object in sight saw the objects for 60 seconds or less. Of those who estimated the distance of the object, two-thirds judged it to be more than a mile away. 90% also thought that it was more than 1,000 feet high. About half judged that the speed was less than 500 miles per hour. The other half varied from 500 miles per hour all the way to terrific, tremendous, inconceivable, and blue blazes. <laughs> So it was one or the other. <laughs> you got a 50-50 shot. A majority saw the object against a clear day or night sky. Two-thirds as many observations were reported as night as in the day. And the most popular hours were from noon to 5 and from 7 p.m. onward. Only six per observations were made from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. They like their, their night owls? They're night owls. Okay. And they don't like to be flying during dusk? I don't know. There's too many mosquitoes out. <laughs> oh, that's what it is. <laughs> Over half described the object as either round, disc-shaped, spherical, or circular. The majority of observers did not specify the object's size, but of those who did, over half said that it was less than 10 feet in its largest dimension. Many compared it with a dime, a lamp, a dot, a weather balloon, a baseball, and the list goes on. Well, that's okay. Right? Okay. I guess because it's so far away. If, if it's, yeah, if it's high in the sky, mm -hmm. it just seems smaller. Mm -hmm. The words used by observers to describe the appearance of the identified objects fall into... They were unidentified, mind you. <laughs> That's the whole point. <laughs> that is the point. <laughs> the words used by observers, <laughs> unidentified objects, fall into a surprisingly uniform pattern. The objects were usually reported as being far away, small, bright, and without distinctive shape. They were usually seen against a clear sky and were frequently seen for less than a minute. They're shy. They are shy. <laughs> They're shy. It is obvious that it would usually be impossible for observers to reliably make estimates of the speed, distance, or size of such objects. It is also not possible to estimate the distance of a small, bright object against a clear sky. Like sign, Grudge thought that the vast bulk of UFO reports could be explained as misidentified clouds stars, sun dogs, conventional aircraft, or the like of misunderstood earthly technology. What's a sun dog and where can I get one? <laughs> I want a sun puppy. <laughs> you think you do. Oh, I know. And then you got to take care of it. You got you to clean up after. You got to teach you how to pee outside. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> However, unlike Sign, which thought some UFOs might have an extraordinary answer, Grudge's personnel 
thought the remaining minority of reports could be explained away as normal phenomena. Grudge began a public relations campaign to explain their conclusions to the general public. Project Grudge issued its only formal report in August of 1949. Though it's over 600 pages long, the report's conclusions stated, There is no evidence that objects reported upon are the result of an advanced scientific foreign development, and therefore they constitute no direct threat to the national security. In view of this, it is recommended that the investigation and study of reports of unidentified flying objects be reduced in scope. Headquarters AMC Air and Material Command will continue to investigate reports in which realistic technical applications are clearly indicated. It is apparent that further study along present lines would only confirm the findings presented herein. It is further recommended that pertinent collection directives be revised to reflect the contemplated change in policy. All evidence and analysis indicate that reports of unidentified flying objects are the result of misinterpretation of various conventional objects. You dummies. <laughs> a mild form of mass hysteria and war nerves. You crazies. <laughs> individuals who fabricate such reports to perpetrate a hoax or to seek publicity. <laughs> <laughs> you narcissists. <laughs> or psychopathological persons. You psychos. <laughs> Not long after this report was released, it was reported that Grudge would soon be dissolved. Despite this announcement, Grudge was not quite finished. A few personnel were still assigned to the project, and they aided the authors of a few more debunking mass media articles. Oh, you pieces of Grudge. In <laughs> 1952, the Grudge was renamed to Project Blue Book, whose objective was investigating sightings, evaluating the data, and releasing the findings to the appropriate media via the Secretary of the Air Force Office of Information. Okay. <laughs> so it's doing the same thing that Sign and Grudge were doing. Yes. It's not anything new. Which is nothing new. Nothing. And at that point, Grudge became known as what is now known as Project Blue Book. Both. Project Grudge and Sign concluded the report by recommending that the Air Force limit the scope of the project, and then this project was started. <laughs> okay, so that's not promising. <laughs> so we talked about Kenneth Arnold earlier in the episode, and you'll finally get to know who in who in the hell this guy is—the first real, quote unquote, real flying saucer. Mm -hmm. On June twenty fourth, nineteen forty seven. A day that was described by Kenneth as a real pleasurable day for flying. Holly G. <laughs> the air was so smooth, he took off from the Chehalis Washington Airport in his personal plane and headed for Yakina, Washington. His trip had been delayed for an hour by a search from a large Marine Corps transport aircraft that supposedly went down near or around the southwest side of Mount Rainier. He climbed to an altitude of 9,200 feet and reported that there was a DC-4, which is a four-engine propeller-driven airplane, to his left and rear about 14,000 feet. After about two or three minutes, he said a bright flash reflected on his airplane. He couldn't see where this flash came from, but to the left and north of Mount Rainier, he said he observed a chain of nine peculiar-looking objects flying from north-south at about 9,500 feet so not too far above him. He stated that the objects flew like geese in a diagonal chain-like line as if they were linked together. In order to determine the approximate size of the object, he used a Zeus fastener 
or a cowling tool he had, which was immediately available inside of the aircraft. He was able to determine the size of the objects was actually about two-thirds the size of a DC-4. When he observed the UFOs passing a high snow-covered ridge between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams, he noted that as the first object was passing through the southern crest of the ridge, the last one was entering the northern crest. They later determined that the ridge was about five miles long, which means that the estimated chain of objects was also five miles long. God damn. That's a long ass chain. Mm-hmm. When he timed the a chain objects of fools. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> when he timed the objects, he determined that they crossed the forty seven mile stretch between Mount Rainier and Adams in one minute and 42 seconds. Oh my gosh. This type of math means that they were traveling at 1,656.71 miles per hour. What is that type of math? <laughs> I don't know. Physics? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Oh. In an interview after the sighting, Arnold tries to, tried to explain that initially he was under the impression that there were some type of jet planes as he couldn't find their tails. He described the objects as appearing like saucers skipping on water. The term was later shortened to flying saucers, which is a term coined by the media and, of course, resulted in the popular use of the term still used today. But we all know it was coined years, 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 and years prior because they might goddamn look the same as things that other people saw. Because you know what? Maybe he's not making it up. Oh, weird. You don't think so? No. (laughs) The Air Force, unsurprisingly, credited his sighting to a mirage he mistook for objects flying. Of course. The Air Force inferred that because of the statement he made regarding how smooth and crystal clear flying conditions were that day, they may have been inversions and an increase of the refraction index of the atmosphere. So what exactly could these objects have been? Were they aircraft from a foreign world, unknown to human eyes, our scientific advances at the time, and even outside of the realm of what we knew at the time? Were they simply government airplanes being tested in a remote location? Could it possibly have been just a figment of Kenneth Arnold's imagination or even simply a mirage? It's possible. I mean, obviously, sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. But as we delve deeper into additional stories of sightings, it becomes less and less convincing to be told that every person we read into is simply seeing mirages in the distance. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the next quote-unquote classic case is from January 1948 with Captain Thomas Mantle over Godman Field Air Force Base in Kentucky. Mm. Mm, what is that? I don't know. You're like, oh, Kentucky. <laughs> I got that so excited Kentucky man. <laughs> yes. I actually did used to have this huge crush on this. Kentucky man? This guy from Kentucky. He sings folk music. I love the way you say folk, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, because you say folk. Folk? <laughs> Earlier in the afternoon of the day in question, Kentucky State Police reported to Fort Knox Military Police that there was a bright, shiny, metallic object approximately 250 to 300 feet in diameter moving westward at a pretty good clip. They were in turn told that there were no experimental crafts in flight in the area at the time. At 1.20 p.m., tower crew at Godman Bay saw a bright disc-shaped object that they were unable to identify. They brought it to the attention of the base commander, the base operations officer, and the base intelligence, but it remained unidentified. At 2.45 p.m., four P-51s approached the base from the south, and Captain Mantle, the flight leader, was asked by tower control to get a closer look so that he could identify it. 
Mantle stated he was on a ferry mission, or in other words, getting the craft back, the aircraft back to the base, but that he'd investigate and took off after the craft. Uh, yeah. Obviously, the Air Force's official stance that UFOs were hallucinations oh, God. did not stop Mantle from wanting to investigate them when he saw it right before his eyes. Mm. He climbed to 15,000 feet, at which point his wingmen turned back as they were not outfitted with oxygen to allow them to continue further. They attempted to contact Mantle by radio at that point, but they were unable. Mantle himself then made a transmission that he was still in pursuit, saying, It looks metallic and it's tremendous in size. It's above me and I'm gaining on it. I'm going to 20,000 feet. Holy shit. Those were his last words. <gasps> his wingmen saw him disappear into the stratospheric clouds for a few seconds, and then he was crashing down to Earth and was killed instantly, unfortunately. Oh, my God. Yes. So there's a, the following is a transcript from the statement of Technical Sergeant Quentin A. Blackwell that was given to the Air Force investigators that were working with Project Blue Book. Hold on. Really quick interjection. Uh-huh. <laughs> I remember when I was... <laughs> No, never mind. What? I remember when I was in the Air Force, mm -hmm. I used to call my tech sergeant, because you say, you just say tech sergeant okay. or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> or like master sergeant, you say mass sergeant, like okay. you just like kind of squish Shorten it together. It. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I remember calling one of my tech sergeants, like technical sergeant Cliff, or what was Kirkland? <laughs> What was he like? Shut up, nerd. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so this this sergeant Quentin A. Blackwell, he's he's telling him talking about the day in question and how he had been notified that there was an unusual type of aircraft in the vicinity of this one base in Mansville, Mansville, Kentucky. It's the Air Technical Information Command's opinion that Mantle died from oxygen starvation. So he went too high, he had a lack of oxygen, and then he crashed down to Earth because he lost all of his... Oxygen? You're going too fucking f high up, dude. But he had equipment that was allowing him to get to a certain point. I've read conflicting reports about that mm. and how much he had. The Air Force's official statement was that Mantle had unfortunately been killed while trying to reach Venus. Here we are again with that Venus, Venus. thing. They were now officially claiming that the enormous, moving, metallic aircraft seen flying over the city by citizens, highway patrol, and Air Force pilots alike was the fucking planet Venus, <laughs> who, like a sneaky little bitch, lured Captain Mantle to his death as oh. it's want to do <laughs> as venus is the planet is want to do Ven okay <laughs> so venus was at a magnitude of negative 3.4 that day which made it six times brighter than the sky and perhaps the movement of the clouds could make the illusion of rapid movements of venus to explain the movement of the craft reported yeah but no. i don't i don't i feel like as an air force pilot you go through some kind of training. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that you're not going to go chase after Venus and die. Yes. Yeah. And also, people in town saw it, too. It wasn't just him climbing high in the sky right. with his, his plane. Jesus. So it's also unlikely that Venus, by the high degree of sky brightness with its proximity to the sun, would be able to be clearly identified from the ground or even 15,000 feet in the sky with an unaided eye. Yeah. Yep. There are rumors about Captain Mantle's body, whether it had been found with strange wounds all over it, or whether they had to force the family to have a closed casket funeral, or if they were even able to find any trace of a body at all among the wreckage of his P-51. According to Captain Arthur T. Jelly. <laughs> it's probably not, is it? Jelly? I have no idea, but all I gotta say is... 
don't, I don't think, think you're ready, ready for <laughs> this jelly. This jelly, everyone. <laughs> so this jelly says that when police officer Joe Walker arrived at the scene, Captain Mantle's body had already been removed from the aircraft. Upon questioning witnesses, Officer Walker discovered that the plane had actually exploded in the air and that once it hit the ground, it no longer burned. So that's the first person to the scene said the body was already removed. I'm Mm. wondering if it was removed or if it was just ejected. Not there anymore for some reason or another. Oh, I wasn't even thinking about that. I was thinking maybe he just disintegrated into bits. I don't know. Upon crashing. Or maybe... He was ejected, or maybe his body wasn't even in the plane anymore. Yep. When at it all, yeah. Maybe. The wreckage was scattered over an area of about one mile, and at the time, the tail section, one wing, and the propeller had not been located. Mm. Then, Godman Tower called to say that there was now a large light in the approximate location the strange object had been earlier. Then, two other towers at Lockburn and Clinton County advised that there was a great ball of light traveling southwest across the sky. Then, St. Louis Tower called, reporting the same great ball of light, and Scott Tower confirmed that light itself. Then they received a call from Air Defense Command out of Olmsted Flight Service Center of a great ball of light traveling at speeds of over 250 miles an hour going west-southwest. And then (laughs) they received a call from Maxwell Flight Service Center that a doctor at Vanderbilt University spotted an object south-southeast of Nashville where a pear-shaped balloon with cables and a basket attached was traveling initially south-southeast, then at west at a speed of 10 miles an hour okay the reason i included this is because they try later to claim that this sighting was an a weather balloon oh god it's always a weather balloon a weather balloon that had been flying in the somewhat area but if you see the difference between all the previous reports where the thing is huge metallic flying at great speeds and then this one where a man a doctor at vanderbilt university is saying it's clearly a a balloon a with a basket balloon. and there's cables attached to it and it's real slow. It's going 10 miles an hour. They're not the same thing. Listen up. Yes. It's never the, it's never a fucking weather balloon. <laughs> it's never – I was on the phone with my parents today. They're in Canada and my dad – I was FaceTiming like my dad and my mom mm-hmm. and my dad – I told my dad we were covering this one and he said, whatever they say, it's always aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Which I mean – uh, maybe not, but at the same time, it's a sham. It's Well, my dad's a huge UFO nerd. And, I mean, <laughs> we just have to realize they're not going to be upfront about this stuff. No, 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 no. For but, whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Whatever it was that day, it's difficult to simply discount all of them as every single one of these many, many people that saw this thing mistook it for the planet Venus oh, or God. a weather balloon. It's ridiculous to say that a trained Air Force pilot can't identify a planet and then not try to kill, kill himself chasing a yeah, planet. Yeah, no That's, kidding. It's, it's actual. I mean, I, I, I get why they have to do it because you can't be like, well, it was an alien. Everybody, sorry. We don't know what to do about it. Oh. But it sure is pretty disrespectful. <laughs> it is. is. Yeah, I think, I think it's disrespectful right. to be like, this crazy pilot thought he was going after an alien and he was chasing a planet that was not really doing anything. Nope. Okay. So, the next encounter that we're going to discuss is one that I've been interested in a while. We could probably do a whole episode about it, but we're not. The Lubbock Lights. Of course you're interested in them. Is there Texas? 
I'm from Texas, y'all. I don't know if you knew. (laughs) One of the first nationally recognized UFO sightings repeatedly seen over Lubbock, Texas in the summer of 1951 described like a string of beads in an almost perfect half circle, a crescent formation, each containing between 20 and 30 lights that were seen by over 100 witnesses. And it was them Lubbock lights. Which, sorry everyone that lives in Lubbock. It smells like cow farms, and it's like sulfur. My brother went to college there. That's called a ranch, actually. Ugh. It's called a ranch. I've lived near ranches. <laughs> it, it's it's something beyond that. There's something, I think, near there. Someone who lives in Lubbock can tell us. There's some place near there. It's That's probably like a, what, what are they called? The pig places? I don't know. They call, <sighs> pig farm? No, no, no. They call, them, they call them something where they actually farm the manure. Oh. That pigs excrete. Oh, I'm not really sure what it is that stinks up there. I don't something. know. So, I'm sure somebody could tell me. I'm sure. So these encounters were given more credence than most of the earlier sightings due to the high caliber of its witnesses. Four Texas Tech college professors witnessed the phenomena, and their testimony was further substantiated by yet another professor and a PhD student on top of very good photographic evidence, making it difficult to brush aside the testimony as coming from essentially uneducated redneck hicks as they were trying to say was the case in Mm -hmm. most of the Mm -hmm. ufo encounters over the course of three weeks these men saw 12 separate flights from these mysterious lights Mm -hmm. and that was just the ones that they documented they said there was actually probably more but officially documented there was 12 it started on august 25th in 1951 when a professor ducker Professor Burt and Professor Robinson were at Robinson's home relaxing and observed the illuminated quote-unquote string of beads whip across the sky. Now, these were all professors of science at Texas Tech. Dr. A.G. Burt was a chemical engineer. Dr. W.L. Tucker was the department head and petrol engineer. And Dr. Dr. Robinson was a geologist. And all were thought to be more quote-unquote credible than other witnesses. Which I can understand, but also that's kind of... Silly. Yeah. yeah. Ducker. I mean, and one, on one hand, if I guess you're going to say they're scientists, so they try to think with the most logical Logic. way possible, then okay, fine. Ducker later said that they felt no shock waves as they would if a craft was moving at those speeds in the lower atmosphere and that it had to be in the stratosphere, 50,000 feet above the earth or higher. He admitted that had he not been in the company of other witnesses, he would have likely not even come forward. Wow. All three men agreed that the beads took about three seconds to pass them in the sky, figuring that at that remarkable pace, they would be going about 1,800 miles an hour if they were a mile high. If they were at 50,000 feet, they would have to have been going about 18,000 miles an hour. Holy fuck. The men also said that they were unable to determine a definite shape of the object due to its speed, but that each one of those little beads gave off a glow of reflective light. Although the men witnessed the lights 12 separate times over a three-week period or more, every single night that they attempted to set up equipment to gather information to more accurately attempt to photographically capture, measure, and study the lights, they did not show up. Which is very reminiscent of Skinwalker Ranch. We have to get that on a shirt, dude. (laughs) (laughs) What's up with this aspect of sightings? Do they have a level of intelligence, awareness, etc. that we do not know about that prevents them from being captured for scientific purposes? Or what? Is Is it just a crazy coincidence? So, from these series of observations, the following facts were obtained. There was no sound that could be attributed to the object. Which is definitely strange. Especially if it's going that fast. Right. There were two or three flights per evening from these objects. The period between flights was about one hour and ten minutes. Hmm. 
The color of the lights was blue-green. There were about 15 to 30 separate lights in each formation. The first two lights observed were a semicircle of lights, but in subsequent flights, there was no orderly arrangement. So they kind of got out of the arrangement for some reason. And there was no apparent change in the size as the object passed overhead. And also, I mean, maybe I'll talk about it in a little while, but they've discovered later that the lights, actually each individual light that made up the formation moved around actually while it was flying so but they kept that oh, perfect formation and they figured that out based off of how much light they were giving off because they all gave off different amounts like of light, light and then they you know photographed it and studied it later it was very scientific so they noticed that these things always appeared at about 50 degrees in the south or southwest they never gradually came into view or disappeared so they just kind of stayed I don't really understand how that's possible. I don't really understand. They followed a rough schedule beginning sometime around 9.20 p.m. and then appearing every hour and 10 minutes until three flights had passed overhead. What the hell is going on here? Really? What are they doing? They tried to determine if there was any form between the lights by discerning if they could see stars between them, but they were unable to due to their speed, obviously. But to me, it sounds like they are all little separate crafts making this formation. Mm Mm-hmm. Two of the professors on another evening witnessed very bright lights fly very low over the house in which they were sitting in the backyard, but because the incident was so unique, they didn't include it in their official count of 12 sightings because they literally were like, did a plane just fly directly over the house? They were unsure themselves, so they were like, ah, I don't really want to... And that's what I'm talking about. These guys were so thoroughly logical with their situation that they didn't even include something that was probably the most bizarre and close encounters of all of them because they were like, were we both hallucinating? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that's that's amazing. That's great that they didn't do that because, God, well, I mean, it's not great, but it's... It's great and it's not great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but they fully believe something weird is going on. So anyway, so we talked a little bit about this Edward J. Ruppelt earlier, but he led the Air Force's Project Blue Book and is by all accounts the first quote-unquote, professional UFO investigator who investigated the Lubbock Lights. Around this time, a student came forward with a photo that he said he had captured of the lights, and though Rupert never said that they were fake, he did say he and the student encountered much difficulty further capturing their own photos in the short time that they'd been, Mm. the lights had been appearing. But like I just said, why does it seem like anytime someone's trying to scientifically capture evidence of paranormal phenomena it's impossible it's impossible yeah and you know i've known people who have said that's because it doesn't exist and i'm like okay (sighs) you you know okay guy go back to (laughs) what what was it that you said about the people on reddit (laughs) m'lady go back to m'ladying people on reddit please (laughs) because the person i think about whenever i say that would absolutely m'lady people on reddit so it's just it, it just fits so perfectly But at the time the photograph was taken, it was well known that these lights had a schedule, and if they would appear, you could get a photo knowing the schedule that they Mm -hmm, would follow. mm -hmm, But, mm -hmm. like I said, the other three professors, it just so happened that the nights that they tried to, never, it never happened. And this guy, this guy that captured the photo, he was, he was, okay, first of all, I'll just tell you. He was experienced taking night photos, so he just had that skill, because it's not something that you can just easily do. do. You have to know the right aperture and everything to be able to capture light in the sky. And and the night that it happened, he was just hap- he just happened to be around his camera and doing some taking some photos, and he was 
like, oh my God, what's going on over there? And we'll post those pictures because I've had them saved on my computer for like two years. (laughs) So investigators came to Lubbock from November 6th through the 9th for a very thorough three-day investigation (laughs) where they interrogated many witnesses. A conference was held with the professors and they signed a sworn statement about what they saw. They were not taking this lightly. The photographer who got the the good picture was interrogated and they found no sign of a hoax and found his story believable. Wow. His photos were investigated by the Associated Press and Life Magazine and it was the opinion of both of these entities that the photos were not a hoax. That said, the professors were a little dubious about the photos for a few reasons. They said, one, they never witnessed the lights in a V formation as they are shown in the photos, which contradicts other people's accounts, but they themselves never saw them that way. Oh, and, and to be honest, the the photographer himself said that the lights appeared to him in a U formation, but once he developed the film, the photos captured made it look like a V, mm-hmm. so it's possible it's just kind of an ang- angle type of thing, mm-hmm. but who knows. And then the, the professors also felt that the objects that they saw were not bright enough to be able to f- be photographed, but like I said, maybe mm-hmm. they just don't have skills for that. Yep. Can't be extras at everything, professors. No. The Wright Air Development Center physics branch did an analysis on the photos and they came to the following conclusions. They said, one, the images on the negatives were caused by light striking unexposed film, meaning the negatives were not retouched. Two, the individual lights in the formation varied in intensity. Three, the intensity was greater than any surrounding stars because no stars registered in the photographs. Mm. Four, the individual lights changed places and their formation versus being fixed lights on a larger object, like I said. So those were not, it wasn't like it was a giant craft with all these lights in this formation. Those lights were individual crafts themselves. Mm -hmm. And they said the actual size of the formation is about 300 feet in diameter, give or take. So, there are some theories that it was a group of migratory birds, but speed and height are just not Migratory quite. birds? <laughs> yes. At night? Not, and not to be seen like that, and not at the speed and the height that they were going. It just doesn't fit. They would have had to have been flying incredibly low to appear to go that fast, and even then, I'm not sure it's possible for them to look like they're going thousands of miles oh, an hour. What the fuck? <laughs> they're fucking ducks. <laughs> Come on. Or geese. Or geese, whatever. Either one. (laughs) They're not going thousands of miles an hour. Plus, most of the accounts state that the lights moved from north to south and back again at a high rate of speed. Okay. Many people familiar with hunting ducks and geese dispelled that theory quickly, saying that whatever it was was not distinguishable like ducks in the sky were, and they moved much faster. You would... Yeah. yeah. I just... Like, how is it more logical? Uh, I just don't understand how it's more logical to say it's it's, geese. It's geese versus it's something we can't explain. No. On August 25th, 1951, an Air Force captain from Reese Air Force Base called the managing editor of the Lubbock Morning Avalanche, which I was like, what kind of name is that? (laughs) For a Texas paper, the Lubbock Morning Avalanche, Mr. J. Harris reporting to him that he witnessed these string of lights many times while flying and that they were much faster than any jet. Mm -hmm. While there were many possible theories to the lights, there was never any conclusive determination. The professors eventually chalked it up to the Air Force testing intelligence that they had no idea about and dropped the issue. But once Rupel with the Air Force came back to town and interviewed them extensively later on after the official three-day 
extravaganza, they said that they were once again concerned about what the lights actually were because he said, no, we weren't testing anything. There's no record of anything being tested. It's not anything experimental. And so they decided then that they had been wrong, even though they were hoping that's what it was. Right. They wanted to continue to investigate it further themselves. Of course they did. But alas, there's really not any... They probably were come. They probably were come and talked to by them men in black. Uh-uh. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> okay, and then we are going to go to Virginia. In September of 1952, there was a woman named Kathleen May who had her attention drawn outside when her two young sons, Eddie and Fred, 12 and 13 respectively, and four other young boys were playing at a nearby park and saw a flying saucer spouting exhaust that looked like flames of red fire. The boys said that the thing landed on a hilltop just above the May residence. One of the older boys, Gene Lemon, who was 17, found a flashlight and said that he was going to go up to investigate. Eddie and Fred urged their mom, Kathleen, to accompany Jean, and somehow she agreed. Probably because she was like, you got kids are crazy. Yeah, go by. <laughs> and off she went, and so did the children. And I was just like, all right, get a girl. I mean, way to go. You have no fear. If you really, you know, believe these kids, you're just like, I'm going to go encounter this alien. Yes. <laughs> it took them about 30 minutes to travel through the thick brush that covered the hill, and the minute that Jean Lemon's flashlight hit the object, he screamed in horror, and the rest of the UFO expedition turned, fleeing back down the hill in a panic. When Gene's flashlight shone on the green lights he had assumed were the eyes of an animal, they illuminated a massive, man-like figure with a red face and greenish eyes that blinked out at them from under a pointed hood. What the fuck is this? <laughs> what the fuck? Okay. It's a... It's either an alien KKK, it's <laughs> uh-uh. a shadow person in a UFO, who knows? Behind the monster was a glowing ball of fire as big as a house that grew dimmer and brighter at intervals. Later, Kathleen May said that the thing had terrible claws. And some of the kids had not noticed the thing having any arms at all. So who knows what really was the case. They did agree that it wore dark clothing, one of them elaborating that it was dark green. They estimated it to be 7 to 10 feet tall. Oh, my God. I know. And all the witnesses agreed that the creature emitted a horrible odor, with Kathleen saying it was like sulfur, but worse than anything she'd ever smelled before. Oh, my word. Before the sheriff arrived on the scene, a Lee Stewart Jr. of the Braxton Democrat showed up. News reporter on the beat, man. He was on the scene before the cops were. Oh, yeah. While some of the kids were receiving first aid from the cuts and scratches that they'd gotten in their mad scramble down the hill, he convinced Kathleen to accompany him back up to the spot where they'd seen this thing. Once they got up there, he saw no sign of any light or flames, but was able to detect a sickening and irritating odor. Mm -hmm. He said in all his time serving in the Air Force, he had grown familiar with a wide variety of gases. I'm sure he was just talking about various kinds of men's flatulence. (laughs) No! Uh, but he had never encountered something like this before. Each of the party later testified that the thing had been moving towards them, but it may have been because they were standing between it and the large globular object that was apparently its spacecraft. One of the boys later testified that the thing didn't really walk, it just moved. It didn't jump. It just moved evenly, which sounds like a goddamn shuttle person. (laughs) And what is the other thing? Oh, the smell. I'm just going to bring it up because not only was it at Skinwalker Ranch where there's a sickening, sulfury smell, but it's happened with black-eyed kids. It's happened with poltergeist activity. This sulfur smell 
I'm telling you right now, everything is connected. I just can't put my finger on it at this point, but I will find out one day, everyone. <laughs> one day. Don't worry. We'll let you know. <laughs> There's a few other cases that were pretty big ones that the Air Force investigated. One was a bunch of sightings in Washington, D.C. In July of 1948, there was an Eastern Airlines DC-3 that took off on a scheduled evening flight from Atlanta to Houston. In a short while later, pilots Clarence S. Chiles, I don't know, what is his name? And John Childs? Childs and John B. Witted, 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 reported a UFO with two rows of windows from which bright lights glowed. Two rows of windows? Yes. Maybe it was, it was like... A passenger maybe UFO. Was a, yeah, exactly. Maybe they were... Maybe they were touristing down Maybe. here. <laughs> the underside of this UFO had a deep blue glow and a 50-foot trail of red-orange flame shot out of the back of it. The two pilots were positive it was not the planet Venus that oh they saw God. that night. Thank you, men, for clarifying. <laughs> There's definitely a thing about these flames shooting out of the bottom of these crafts, whatever that means. I mean, maybe that's just how they get their power to go 16,000 miles an hour. And there's another one that took place in Fargo, Fargo. For, <laughs> North Dakota. <laughs> North Dakota. And it was in 1948, of October of 1948, when a second lieutenant for the Air National Guard, George F. Gorman, was waiting to land at Fargo when he was passed closely on one side by an incredible bright light. He got on the radio to complain about the errant pilot, and he was told that there were no aircrafts in the vicinity aside from a Piper Cub, which was just landing. But Gorman could see the mysterious light off to one side and went to investigate. Within moments, he was on a collision course with the light, and he made a oh. swift dive to avoid a crash. Then, the UFO repeated the attack, forcing him to once again dive to just barely avoid a collision. When the thing finally disappeared, Gorman was convinced that, in his words, its maneuvers were controlled by thought or reason. After these sightings, many pilots were reminded of the Foo Fighters that we talked about from World War II. In late December 1951, Ruppelt met with the members of the Battelle Memorial Institute, a think tank based in Columbus, Ohio. Ruppelt wanted their experts to assist them in making an Air Force UFO study more scientific. It was the Battelle Institute that devised the standardized reporting form. Starting in late March of 1952, the Institute started analyzing existing sighting reports and encoding about 30 report characteristics onto IBM punched cards for computer analysis. Project Blue Book Special Report Number 14 was their massive statistical analysis of Blue Book cases to date, some 3,200 by the time the report was completed in 1954 after Rupert had left Blue Book. Even today, it represents the largest such study ever undertaken. Patel employed four scientific analysts who sought to divide cases into knowns, unknowns, and a third category of insufficient information. They also broke down knowns and unknowns into four categories of quality, from excellent to poor. Examples given were cases deemed excellent, might typically involve experienced witnesses such as airline pilots or trained military personnel, multiple witnesses, corroborating evidence such as radar contact or photographs, etc. In order for a case to be deemed known, only two analysts had to independently agree on a solution. However, for a case to be called a quote unknown, all four analysts had to agree. Thus, the criterion for an unknown was quite stringent. In addition, sightings were broken down into six different characteristics. Color, 
number, duration of observation, brightness, shape, and speed. And then these characteristics were compared between knowns and unknowns to see if there was a statistically significant difference. When the Air Force finally made special report number 14 public in October of 1955, it was claimed that the report scientifically proved that UFOs did not exist. Oh, thank goodness. (laughs) Critics of this claim note that the report actually proved that the unknowns were distinctly different from the knowns at a very high statistical significance level. The Air Force also incorrectly claimed that only 3% of the cases studied were unknown instead of what was actually 22%. They further claimed that the residual 3% would probably disappear if more complete data were available. Critics countered that this ignored the fact that the analysts had already thrown such cases into the category of insufficient information, whereas both knowns and unknowns were deemed to have sufficient information to make a determination. Also, the unknowns tended to represent the higher quality cases, like reports that had already had better information and witnesses. Five years after the initial sighting by Kenneth Arnold, the Robertson panel was assembled. This was, of course, headed by Howard P. Robertson, who was an American mathematician and a physicist known most for his contributions related to physical cosmology and the uncertainty principle. Additionally, this panel included various physicists, meteorologists, engineers, and one astronomer, Joseph Allen Hynek. Wait, what's the uncertainty principle? The one by which I live my life? Yes. <laughs> okay. Most UFO reports they concluded could be explained as misidentification of mundane aerial objects and the remaining minority could in all likelihood be similarly explained with further study. Sure. Of course they could. Of Just course. Give me a couple more seconds to stare at that thing in the sky yep. and it not it's allow me to capture it and study it in any scientific way. And I'll tell you, it's... Just a cloud. Venus. <laughs> Venus. I'm your Venus. I'm your fire. <laughs> your desire. Baby. <laughs> the Robertson panel recommended that a public education campaign should be undertaken in order to reduce public interest in the subject, mm-hmm. minimizing the risk of swamping air defense systems with reports at critical times, and that civilian UFO groups should be monitored. <laughs> monitored? Yep. That's pretty serious. Yeah. That's uh, why would that be? I don't know. But that they seem, should be monitors. They're terrorists. Like, yeah, it seems like you should take. You're taking them a little too, too seriously. seriously for something that doesn't exist. Yeah. In their final report, they stressed that low-grade, unverifiable UFO reports were overloading intelligence channels, with the risk of missing a genuine conventional threat to the U.S. I'm sorry, but what if there's a goddamn threat to the U.S. with a UFO? You absolutely you pooches. Absolutely. <laughs> Therefore, they recommended the Air Force de-emphasize the subject of UFOs and embark on a debunking campaign to lessen public interest. Hmm. They suggested debunkery through the mass media, including Walt Disney production. Walt, you piece of shit. (laughs) And using psychologists, astronomers, and celebrities to ridicule the phenomenon and put forward prosaic explanations. Yeah, just get Charlton Heston to come out and say, oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking about UFOs, what kind of sissy are you? Furthermore, civilian UFO groups should 
be watched because of their potentially great influence on mass thinking. The apparent irresponsibility and the possible use of such groups for subversive purposes should be kept in mind. Are y'all monitoring ghost hunting groups out there too? So why are we monitoring, exactly, why are we monitoring civilian UFO groups if there's nothing to be monitoring? Are you also monitoring the Squatch groups and the... You better be monitoring Zach groups. Bagans. Bagans. <laughs> and are you monitoring me? <laughs> it is the conclusion of many researchers that the Robertson panel was recommending controlling public opinion <laughs> through a program of official propaganda and spying. Hmm. I think we're of one of the many researchers. Yeah. <laughs> they also believe these recommendations helped shape Air Force policy regarding UFO study, not only immediately afterward, but also to the present day. There is evidence that the panel's recommendations were being carried out at least two decades after its conclusions were issued. Stay out of my UFO business, the Air Force. <laughs> the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you put that in parentheses. Stay out of my UFO business, the Air Force. <laughs> As an immediate consequence of the Robertson panel recommendation, in February of 1953, the Air Force issued Regulation 200-2, ordering Air Base officers to publicly discuss UFO incidents only if they were judged to have been solved and to classify all of the unsolved cases to keep them out of the public eye. You slimy little bitches. What is this? Don't talk about it unless it's been solved to be a cloud. Mm-hmm. Okay. Actually, this is such a, a load of crap because the people who have these reports in such great propensity are the people flying in the air with them, and now you're telling them to keep your mouth shut under Air Force regulation. Don't ask, don't tell about UFOs. Yes. The same month, investigative duties started to be taken on by the newly formed 4602nd Air Intelligence Squadron, AISS. Ice. Ass. Ass. Hey, get out of my ass. Of the Air Defense Command. The 4602nd AISS was assigned the task, <laughs> was assigned the task of investigating only the most important UFO cases with intelligence or national security implications. These cases were deliberately siphoned away from Blue Book leaving Blue Book to deal with more trivial reports. Oh, you don't say. <laughs> In December of 1953, Joint Army-Navy Air Force Regulation Number 146 made it a crime for military <gasps> personnel to discuss classified UFO reports with unauthorized persons. Patoo! Patoo! <laughs> that was me spitting on it. I know. <laughs> I got it. But yeah, I'm glad that you made the... Noise and <laughs> the description for the audience. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> Violators faced up to two years in prison and or fines of up to $10,000. I read many of these guys saying that they felt this was ridiculous. Yeah, I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. Are you kidding me? They're like, I can't even believe this crap. That first of all, we're up there seeing this stuff and then we're told that we're crazy and then we're told shut shut your mouth about it or you're going to go to jail or go, get fined for $10,000. I'll tell you what. And slash or Ashley, they could be in prison and $10,000 or just or $10,000. I'll tell you what. Rupel described the demoralization of the Blue Book staff and the stripping of their investigative duties following the Robertson panel jurisdiction. He said that a lot of the time 
Rupolt, maybe it was Rupolt, maybe it was Hynek, that every time somebody started getting serious about their investigation, they were transferred to a different division altogether. How convenient. Right. General Nathan Twinning, who started Project Sign in 1947, was now Air Force Chief of Staff. In August of 1954, he was to further codify the responsibilities of the 4602nd AISS by issuing... IS. <laughs> by issuing an updated Air Force Regulation 200-2. In addition, UFOs, called UFOBs, were defined... Unidentified flying objects, bitch! <laughs> what is that? Do you know? <laughs> I don't. Okay. <laughs> I like your definition, though. <laughs> We're defined as any airborne object, which by performance, aerodynamic characteristics, or unusual features does not conform to any presently known aircraft or missile type, or which cannot be positively identified as a familiar object. Investigations of UFOs was stated to be for the purposes of national security and to ascertain technical aspects. AFR 200-2 again stated that Blue Book could discuss UFO cases with the media only if they were regarded as having a conventional explanation. If they were unidentified, the media was to be told only that the situation was being analyzed. <laughs> Blue Book was also ordered to reduce the number of unidentified to a minimum. So, how do you like that? I know that I hate it. I also read, and I'm just butting in here, that they were told, this is what it is. You're, you're discussing it with your higher up. Well, I always say that. I have no idea who the stupid hoot nanny names are. And they're just trying to discuss this in a scientific way. And then they're told, that was a balloon, John. Major John. Major John. <laughs> that was a balloon, Major John. <laughs> Get out of here. Hold on. You would use the last name. <laughs> <laughs> And you wouldn't say major in that case. You'd just say the last name. General John Ginch. Nope. <laughs> nope. Let's just continue. Let's continue. All this work was done secretly. The public face of Blue Book continued to be the official Air Force investigation of UFOs, but the reality was that it had essentially been reduced to doing very little serious investigation. Shocking. Mm -hmm. And had become almost solely a public relations outfit with a debunking mandate. Ugh. To How cite dare one you. example, by the end of 1956, the number of cases listed at as unsolved had dipped to barely a 0.4% from the 20 to 30% only a few years earlier. Because they told them, close those cases. Mm -hmm. Figure it out. Mm -hmm. I don't care how you do it, just do it. Say it's Venus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or a weather balloon. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Rubel requested reassignment, and at his departure in August of 1953, his staff had been reduced from more than 10 to just two subordinates and himself. His temporary replacement was a non-commissioned officer, so a tech sergeant or a staff sergeant. Most who succeeded him as Blue Book director exhibited either apathy or outright hostility to the subject of ufos oh that's good I, that's like a cold case detective i fucking hate people who go missing <laughs> they're stupid and lazy <laughs> the, the people who go missing or were hampered by a lack of funding and official support great mm -hmm. ufo investigators often regard rupert's brief tenure at blue book as the high watermark of public air force investigations of ufos and when ufo investigations were treated seriously and had support at high levels thereafter project blue book 
descended into a new quote unquote dark ages from which many UFO investigators argue it never emerged. However, Ruppelt later came to embrace the Blue Book perspective that there was nothing extraordinary about UFOs. He even labeled the subject as a, quote, space age myth. Mm -hmm. In March of 1954, Captain Charles Harden was appointed the head of Blue Book. However, the 4602nd conducted most UFO investigations and Harden didn't object Ruppelt wrote that Hardin thinks that anyone who is ever interested in UFOs is crazy. They bore him. Oh, good thing you're the head of Blue Book then. Beautiful. That just goes to show Absolutely. that you didn't give, they weren't taking it seriously. It Absolutely. It was a puppet show, essentially. Yep. Okay, so a little while after that situation where Blue Book essentially just became nothing, even more than it already was, there's one of the most famous encounters with a ufo the kelly hopskinville encounter it happened on august 12th 1955 in kelly hopskinville kentucky again it was a normal sunday night gathering at the mcgahee's farm which was being rented by the sutton family teenager billy ray sutton went out to get a drink from the well and as he stood sipping on the water he was shocked to witness a large bright object land around 900 feet away from the farmhouse Hmm. He told his family, who were all initially unfazed, Shut up, Billy. I'm listening to my stories. <laughs> stories. Their lack of that good. <laughs> their lack of interest took a turn, however, when they began to see little men oh. less than four feet tall with long arms and large round heads descending on the farmhouse. They all testified later that the beings had glowing yellow eyes. They said they were extremely large orbs that seemed very sensitive to light. The whole family felt that it was the outside lights of the farmhouse that prevented the beings from entering, rather than the bullets that they were hammering at them with great abundance uh-uh. because they were shooting the shit out of those little greenies. Which, according to one of the family members, they were the bullets were simply just bouncing right off these little men's nickel-plated armor. They said, although several direct hits were made on the aliens, they seemed to pop right up again and disappear into the darkness, away from the light, they said. A man named Taylor told investigators, I knocked one of them off a barrel with my twenty-two. I heard the bullet hit the critter and ricochet off. The little man floated to the ground and rolled up like a ball. I used up four boxes of shells on that little man. Billy Ray Sutton blasted one of them point blank with his shotgun. The alien simply somersaulted and rolled off into the darkness. What is this? The goddamn Cirque du Soleil aliens? (laughs) Like, what's going on? As with the monster at Flatlands, West Virginia, the witnesses claimed that the aliens did not walk, but seemed to float towards them, which is exactly how everything else is described as moving that's paranormal. I mean, seriously. Herky jerky or floating. The farmers battled the creatures for four fucking hours. Jesus. Four hours. Uh uh-uh, uh. That's before too long. racing in panic to the Hopskinville police station for reinforcements. Chief Greenwell was convinced by the obvious hysteria of the three children and the clear terror of the eight adults that they had been battling something mm-hmm. on the farm. And it was well known that the Suttons weren't a drinking family, so they weren't just on some wild redneck bender. <laughs> Chief Greenwell. Greenwell led more than a dozen state, county, and city police to investigate, and if it was needed, they were going to battle it out with these little bitches. 
On the way to the farm, the officers noticed a strange shower of meteors that came from the direction of the farmhouse, and one of the officers later testified that they had made a swishing sound when they passed overhead. Were these ladyboy meteors, or what? Oh, you are <laughs> using ladyboy a lot, lady. But seriously, though, the lights flying across the sky making a swishing sound is also something that we've already heard yeah. tonight. And, you know, these police officers are not going to be sitting here thinking those far-off lights flying away in the distance are going to be a UFO, they're going to think they're meteors, but where in the hell did all these, these meteors, meteors come, come from? from? All just happened to come from this farm where they were being attacked by something. I don't think that whole family was soberly shooting at meteors in the sky. No. Investigators found no trace of a spaceship, little men, or anything of that sort, but they did find several peculiar signs and indications that something extremely strange had taken place on the farm. There were enough bullet holes that proved that the farmers felt that they were under threat enough to shoot the shit out of the farm. Because they did. Well, these, well, for four hours. I mean, that is like... <laughs> This is like we're watching Justified or something. While while these cases were quite notorious with the public, the Air Force investigators barely wanted to acknowledge their existence. Of course. The files on these cases were little more than news clippings and bitchy comments regarding the mental stability of the witnesses. When Dr. J. Allen Hynek wrote The UFO Experience in 1972... He presented his UFO category, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which described confrontations between human and alleged alleged aliens from landed, unidentified vehicles. He said that they, at the time, had over 800 sightings of that sort on file. Holy 800. shit. 800. Now, this is just like every other thing we talk about that's paranormal, where there's, I know, skeptical people. I am skeptical, too. But at the same time. What about aliens? Well, <laughs> that's I, the only thing. I'm not skeptical about. (laughs) Well, regardless, 800 sightings, you're trying to tell me that even 700 of those are all faking it or crazy? Like, you're out of your mind Mm -hmm. if you're trying to sit here and tell me that it... Of course we don't know, but it's just 800 people are lying. Some of those people are not lying, okay? Heineck admitted that when he had first heard of such encounters while working as a consultant on Project Blue Book... His natural prejudices caused him to completely disregard them immediately. But he now concedes that no scientist... Let me... Let, let me... Oh, I love this. He now concedes that no scientist should ever discard data simply because he doesn't like it. Can I get an amen? Amen. Come on now. <laughs> Hell yeah. He says he had been trying to foster a positive attitude for years when John Fuller presented the fascinating account of Betty and Barney Hill. Hell yeah. The couple who claimed to have been medically examined aboard a UFO and subjected to a physical examination, which altered his thinking completely. Which I think the boys The did Bumbles that. did that. You know, maybe one day we'll do that. Absolutely. Mm. I would love to cover Betty and Barney Hill. Betty They're and Barney Hill. F- oh, oh, I'm so hyped. <laughs> <laughs> the next case is one that seems to have definitely begun to change the minds of some of the Air Force per- personnel that not all of these encounters could simply be explained by hallucinations or weak mental fortitude. On April 24th, 1964, in Socorro, New Mexico. Socorro. So, 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying. <laughs> Don't make me say it like that, please. <laughs> Policeman Lonnie Zamora. Zamora. <laughs> <laughs> was pursuing a speeding vehicle when he reported sighting an object about a mile south of a mile south of town around 5:45 p.m. in an unpopulated area filled with hills and gullies and covered in thick sagebrush. 
Lonnie Zamora could thank the mayor for his position as sheriff, and he thought that this light in the sky was the mayor's dynamite shack that had exploded. Okay. He decided to let the 17-year-old town troublemaker that he was chasing go. He changed course to investigate the shack. He climbed a rather troublesome hill. He had to reverse and readjust and try again three times before Jeez. making it to the top of this hill. And upon first glance, he took the object to be an overturned car, thinking some teenagers must have flipped while erratically climbing the hill. And his immediate reaction was to lend them assistance. He radioed this in and said that he would be out of his car assisting an accident. He reported that with that first glance, he noticed two beings in white coveralls who, when they saw him approaching, seemed startled. And that was the one and only time he saw these two, like, painters, painting aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Zamora reported that the object was aluminum white, not like chrome. It was egg-shaped or oval-shaped, and, and it was supported on girder-like legs. Then he said he heard a roar and saw smoke and an orange-blue flame again, coming orange again, coming from the bottom of the craft, and he thought it was about to explode, so he took off running toward his own vehicle for cover. <laughs> In doing so, he bumped his leg and knocked his glasses off, which was a real nerd, <laughs> nerd move, dude, <laughs> causing him to crouch down and shield his eyes with his arm. In this time, he says that the craft had risen 15 to 20 feet off the ground and that the flame and the smoke had ceased. He says at this point, he noticed an insignia on the bottom of the craft in red. It was one to one and a half feet in height. It sh was shaped like a crescent with a vertical arrow and a horizontal line underneath. He drew a picture of this immediately and we'll post it. He says that the craft hovered stationary at that height for several seconds before taking off and flying horizontally over the gully. Zamora was very specific about the sound that the thing made. He described it as a roar, not a blast, not like a jet. It changed from high frequency to a low frequency, and then it stopped. A Sergeant Chavez arrived on the scene shortly after that, due to Zamora's earlier call, and he did not see any craft, but he did notice some depressions in the ground where Zamora said it had been, along with some burned brush in that same area. Mm. Interestingly enough, those depressions that were made in the ground were still there over three months later when investigators revisited the scene for some fucking reason. I can't even How begin weird. Why would they to understand be why it was just made in the dirt and somehow they were still there. The Air Force sent investigators who found no other witnesses of this object or its inhabitants. There were no test helicopters or crafts in the area. Radar operations had observed no unusual blips. There was really nothing unusual aside from some depressions in the ground and charred brush. Although investigators wanted to be able to discredit Zamora or chalk it up to a hoax, they simply could not find one person in town that gave an even less than positive review of Zamora and his character, and they didn't feel that anyone in town would be able to pull off such a hoax without leaving any bit of evidence of, for them to find. Because like I said, it was in the 50s. It wasn't like it was, this is not some high-tech time. They discovered and they found literally nothing, no evidence whatsoever, because they were thinking, what if someone set off a balloon to go fly off in the sky the minute this guy climbed up a hill? But there was nothing left behind whatsoever, and Zamora had the run of the town. He didn't have a set schedule. He just was chasing a car, and this happened to be right around the that hill. same time, yeah. They discovered that initially following the incident that Zamora first asked his superior if he should call his priest. And his second comment was that he resented the whole thing because it caused him to not fill his quota of speeders that day. Oh, what a fucker. Yeah, he's that kind of guy. <laughs> what a motherfucker. They said he was a very simple man. He was not 
crazy with imagination. He liked to catch speeders and that was it. Like that was it. Yeah. So it wasn't like he was just prone to flights of fancy. The overwhelming opinion of investigators and the townspeople is that it was some kind of war games test, though there was officially nothing of that sort going on at the time. Doesn't mean there wasn't at all, but there was nothing officially. Mm-hmm. The only other possible witness to the event was a man just traveling through town who stopped at the gas station to fill up his car. He told the attendant, your airplanes like to fly awfully low around here. One liked to knock me off the road just south of town. The attendant answered, oh, we have a lot of helicopters flying around here. And the man said, if that was a helicopter, it was the damnedest helicopter I've ever saw. It seems he was in some sort of trouble because he landed just over the hill and a little while later I saw a police car going out towards it. Mm. Which somewhat substantiated Zamora's story, but that was the one and only thing that they could find to substantiate it. But I mean, come on. That's just a stranger. He's not some townsperson. He was just driving through. He said he saw something fly over his car way too low and then a police car drove right over to it. So, oh my god. Who knows? Captain George T. Gregory took over as Blue Book's director in 1956 and Gregory led Blue Book in an even firmer anti-UFO direction than the apathetic Hardin. Good. The 4602nd was dissolved and the 1066th Air Intelligence Service Squadron was charged with UFO investigations. In fact, there was actually little to no investigation of UFO reports, and a revised AFR 200-2 issued during Gregory's tenure emphasized that unexplained UFO reports must be reduced to a minimum. They must be. One way that Gregory reduced the number of unexplained UFOs was by simple reclassification. Possible cases became probable, and probable cases were upgraded to certainties. Okay. By this logic... A possible comment became a probable comment, while a probable comment was flatly declared to have been a misidentified comment. Similarly, if a witness reported an observation of an unusual balloon-like object, Blue Book usually classified it as a balloon with no research or qualification. Listen, B- Project Blue Book, I spotted something in the sky flying and it was silver. Yeah, it- it's a balloon. It was a balloon? <laughs> Probably. Oh. <laughs> Which means it definitely is. Yes. 100%. (laughs) These procedures became standard for most of Blue Book's later investigations. Major Robert J. Friend was appointed... No friend to UFO (laughs) research. (laughs) ...was appointed the head of Blue Book in 1958, and he made some attempts to reverse the direction Blue Book had taken since 1954. Friend's efforts to upgrade the files and catalog sightings according to various observed statistics were frustrated by a lack of funding and assistance. And heartened by Friend's efforts, J. Allen Hynek, who was a part of the Robertson Committee organized the first of several meetings between Blue Book staffers and ATIC personnel in 1959. Hynek suggested that some older UFO reports should be reevaluated, with the ostensible aim of moving them from the unknown to the identified category. Hynek's plans came to naught. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no. During Friend's tenure, ATIC contemplated passing oversight of Blue Book to another Air Force agency, but neither the Air Force Air Research and Development Center nor the Office of Information of the Secretary of the Air Force was interested. In 1960, there were U.S. congressional hearings regarding UFOs and Civilian UFO Research Group, NICAP, who is the National Investigations Committee 
of aerial phenomena had publicly charged Blue Book with covering up UFO evidence and had also acquired a few allies in the U.S. Congress. Blue Book was investigated by the Congress and the CIA with critics, most notably NICAP, asserting that Blue Book was lacking as scientific study. In response, ATIC added personnel, increasing the total personnel to three military personnel plus civilian secretaries. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Get out of control. <laughs> and increased the Blue Book's budget. This seemed to mollify some of Blue Book's critics, but it was only temporary. A few years later, the criticism would be even louder by none other than Hynek himself. By the time he was transferred from Blue Book in 1963, Friend thought that Blue Book was effectively useless and ought to be dissolved, even if it caused an outcry amongst the public. Major Hector Quintanilla took over as Blue Book's leader in August of 1963. He largely continued the debunking efforts, and it was under his direction that Blue Book received some of its sharpest criticism. UFO researcher Jerome Clark goes so far as to write that by this time, Blue Book had lost all credibility. Physicist and UFO researcher Dr. James E. McDonald once flatly declared that Quintanilla was not competent from either a scientific or an investigative perspective, although he also stressed that Quintanilla should not be held accountable for it as he was chosen for his position by a superior officer and was following orders in directing Blue Book. Was Major Hector Quintanilla previously the major of Biscuits? Making biscuits in the kitchen. <laughs> Why? And then they just transferred him over oh here as the, the head of Blue Book. <laughs> Blue Book's explanations of UFO reports were not universally accepted, however, and critics, including some scientists, suggested that Project Blue Book performed questionable research, or worse, it was perpetrating cover-up. Heck yeah, it was. This criticism grew especially strong and widespread in the 1960s. For example... The many mostly nighttime UFO reports from the Midwestern and Southeastern United States in the summer of 1965, witnesses in Texas reported, quote, multicolored lights and large aerial objects shaped like eggs or diamonds. The Oklahoma Highway Patrol reported that Tinker Air Force Base, which is in Oklahoma City, had tracked up to four UFOs simultaneously and that several of them had descended very rapidly. From about 2,200 feet to about 4,000 feet in just a few seconds, an action well beyond the capabilities of conventional aircraft of the era. John Shockley, a meteorologist from Wichita, Kansas, reported that using the State Weather Bureau radar, he tracked a number of odd aerial objects flying out at altitudes between 6,000 and 9,000 feet. These and other reports received wide publicity. And Project Blue Book officially determined the witnesses had mistaken Jupiter oh. <laughs> or bright stars such as Rigel or Betelgeist for something else. So now we're going from Venus to Jupiter. Mm -hmm. Next will be what, Mars? Mars, Saturn. Okay, perfect. Pluto, if it was a planet anymore. No, I think it is a planet Oh, it's again? again. I okay. think so. I don't know. We keep changing it. Mm. Blue Book's explanation was widely criticized as inaccurate. Robert Reiser, director of the Oklahoma Science and Art Foundation Planetarium, offered a strongly worded rebuke of Project Blue Book that was widely circulated. He said, That is as far from the truth as you can get. These stars and planets are on the opposite side of the Earth from Oklahoma City at this time of year. The Air Force must have had its star finder upside down in August. <laughs> 
A newspaper editorial from the Richmond Newsleader opinioned that attempts to dismiss the reported sightings under the rationale as exhibited by Project Blue Book won't solve mystery and serve only to heighten the suspicion that there's something out there the Air Force does not want us to know about. While a Wichita-based UPI reporter noted that ordinary radar does not pick up planets and stars. Right. That little detail. Another case that Blue Book's critics seize upon was the so-called Portage County UFO chase, which began at about 5 a.m. near Ravenna, Ohio, on April 17, 1966. Police officers Dale Spower and Wilbur Neff spotted what they described as a disc-shaped silvery object with a bright light emanating from its underside at about a thousand feet in altitude. They began following the object, which they reported sometimes descended as low as 50 feet, and police from several other jurisdictions were involved in the pursuit. The chase ended about 30 minutes later near Freedom, Pennsylvania, some 85 miles away. Damn, dude. The UFO chase made national news and the police submitted detailed reports to Blue Book. Five days later, following brief interviews with only one of the police officers but none of the other ground witnesses, Blue Book's director, Major Hector Quintanilla, announced their conclusions. The police, one of them an Air Force gunner during the Korean War, had first chased a communication satellite, then the planet Venus. Go fuck (laughs) yourself, Quintanilla. This conclusion was widely derided, and police officers strenuously rejected it. In his dissenting conclusion, Hynek discovered described Blue Book's conclusions as absurd. In their reports, several of the police had unknowingly described the moon, Venus, and the UFO, though they unknowingly described Venus as a bright star very near the moon. Ohio Congressman William Stanton said that the Air Force had suffered a great loss of prestige in this community. Once people entrusted with the public welfare no longer think the public can handle the truth, then the people in return will no longer trust the government. Mm. Well, you shouldn't anyway, though, to be honest. <laughs> in 1966, a string of UFO sightings in Massachusetts and New Hampshire provoked a congressional hearing by the House Committee on Armed Services. According to attachments to the hearing, the Air Force had at first stated that the sightings were the result of a training exercise happening in the area, but NICAP reported that there were no there was no record of a plane flying at the time the sightings occurred. Another report alleged that the UFO was actually a flying billboard advertising gasoline. My God. (laughs) Easily confused with an unidentified flying object. So easy to confuse that. Raymond Fowler of NICAP added his own interviews with the locals who saw Air Force officers confiscating newspapers with the story of UFOs and telling them not to report on what they had seen. Two police officers who had witnessed the UFOs, Eugene Bertrand and David Hunt, wrote a letter to Major Quintanilla stating that they felt their reputations were destroyed by the Air Force. I mean, yeah. They said, It was impossible to mistake what we saw for any kind of military operation, regardless of altitude. The irritated officers also wrote, adding that there was no way it could have been a balloon or a helicopter. According to the Secretary Harold Brown of the Air Force, Blue Book consisted of three steps, investigation, analysis, and the distribution of information gathered to interested parties. After Brown gave permission, the press were invited into the hearing. By the time of the hearing, Blue Book had identified and explained 95% of the reported UFO sightings. 
none of these were extraterrestrial or a threat to national security. Brown himself proclaimed, I know of no one of scientific standing or executive standing with a detailed knowledge of this in our organization who believes that they came from extraterrestrial sources. There's no scientific person in this organization Mm -mm. because you filled it with bakers and golfers. (laughs) Bakers and golfers. Experts at baking and golfing. (laughs) Thank you for explaining what bakers and golfers are. (laughs) Dr. J. Allen Hynek who was, again, a science consultant to Blue Book, suggested in an unedited statement that a, quote, civilian panel of physical and social scientists be formed, quote, for the express purpose of determining whether a major problem really exists. In regards to UFOs, Hynek remarked that he has not seen any evidence to confirm extraterrestrials, nor do I know any competent scientist who has or believes that any kind of extraterrestrial intelligence is involved. So who knows? That doesn't sound very promising either. Criticism of Blue Book continued to grow through the mid-1960s. NICAP's membership ballooned to about 15,000, and the group charged the U.S. government with a cover-up of UFO evidence. Following U.S. congressional hearings, the Condon Committee was established in 1966, ostensibly as a neutral scientific research body. However, the committee became mired in controversy, with some members charging Director Edward U. Condon with bias, Mm. and critics would question the validity and the scientific rigor of the Condon Report. Condom Report. (laughs) In the end, the Condon Committee suggested that there was nothing extra... Extra... There was nothing extraordinary about UFOs, and while it left a minority of cases unexplained, the report also argued that further research would not likely yield significant results. Mm. So just don't bother. In response to the Condon Committee's conclusions, Secretary of the Air Force Robert C. Siemens Jr. announced that Blue Book would soon be closed because further funding, quote, cannot be justified either on the grounds of national security or in the interest of science. Because, as you know, (laughs) trying to figure out if there's life on other planets is just plain dumb. It's silly. Mm -hmm. The last publicly acknowledged day of Blue Book operations was December 17th, 1969. However, researcher Brad Sparks, citing research from the May 1970 issue of NICAP's UFO Investigator, reports that the last day of Blue Book activity was actually January 30, 1970. According to Sparks, Air Force officials wanted to keep the Air Force's reaction to the UFO problem from overlapping into a fourth decade and thus altered the date of Blue Book's closure in official files. Oh my god. We don't want it to go on too long, so we're going to make sure that it's 1969. What kind of nonsense is that? It's nonsense. But... Blue Book's files were sent to the Air Force archives at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama, and Major David Shea was later to claim that Maxwell was chosen because it was accessible yet not too inviting. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Ultimately, Project Blue Book stated that UFO sightings were generated as a result of, one, a mild form of mass hysteria, two, individuals who fabricate such reports to perpetrate a hoax or seek publicity. Fires. Mm -hmm. Uh, Three, we talked about this already. We did. (laughs) Three psychological, psychopathological persons. Psychos. And four, misidentification of various conventional objects. Confusedies. (laughs) (laughs) In 
September 1968, Hynek received a letter from Colonel Raymond Sleeper of the Foreign <laughs> Technology Division. Looks like he's sleeping on this report. <laughs> <laughs> Sleeper noted that Hynek had publicly accused Blue Book of shoddy science and further asked Hynek to offer advice on how Blue Book could improve its scientific methods. Hynek was to later declare that Sleeper's letter was the first time in my 20-year association with the Air Force as scientific consultant that I had been officially asked for criticism and advice regarding the UFO problem, which is something to, there's something to be said for that. <laughs> oh, Hynek wrote a detailed response dated October 7th, 1968, suggesting several areas where Blue Book could improve. In part, he wrote, Neither of the two missions of Blue Book, which were determining if UFOs are a threat to national security and using scientific data gathered by Blue Book, are being adequately executed. The staff of Blue Book, both in numbers and in scientific training, is grossly inadequate. Blue Book suffers in that it is a closed system. There is virtually no scientific dialogue between Blue Book and the outside scientific world. The statistical methods employed by Blue Book are nothing less than a travesty. A travesty. There has been a lack of attention to significant UFO cases and too much time spent on routine cases. Why would that be? And on peripheral peripheral public relations tasks. Concentration could be on two or three potentially significant cases per month instead of being spread thin over 40 to 70 cases per month. The information input to Blue Book is grossly inadequate. An impossible load is placed on Blue Book by the almost consistent failure of UFO officers at local air bases to transmit adequate information. The basic attitude and approach within Blue Book is illogical and unscientific. Inadequate use has been made of the project scientific consultant, Heineck himself. Only cases that the project monitor deems worthwhile are brought to his attention. His scope of operation has been consistently thwarted. He often learns of interesting cases only a month or two after the receipt of the report at Blue Book. That's a shame. Ooh. Despite Sleeper's request for criticism, none of Hynek's commentary resulted in any substantial changes in Blue Book. Quintanilla's own perspective on the project is documented in his manuscript, UFOs, an Air Force Dilemma. Lieutenant Colonel Quintanilla wrote the manuscript in 1975, but it was not published until after his death in 1998. Quintanilla states in the text that he personally believed it arrogant to think human beings were the only intelligent life in the universe. Yet, while he found it highly likely that intelligent life existed beyond Earth, he had no hard evidence of any extraterrestrial visitation. Well, look at that. (laughs) On February 27th, 1960, Vice Admiral Robert Hillencoder, retired U.S. Navy, former head of CIA, released photostatic copies of the Air Force's 202 directive, which uh, Bianca has talked about about seven times already, <laughs> to the public, emphasizing that while they main- while the Air Force maintains that there is nothing to be concerned with, they were, in fact, interested in these UFOs and the threat that they may pose to national security. But nothing really had changed. It was the same old song and dance of downplaying sightings, denial, and secrecy. The Air Force's astronomy consultant, Hynek, who we've spoken about many 
Times says that the that any time the project had Air Force investigators who were serious about the project and their investigation, they were transferred to another line of work. Mm. To Hynek, it was obvious that Project Blue Book was really there to pacify the public, but was not officially taken seriously. Basically, the UFO and the Project Blue Book itself have always really been a public relations problem more than anything else. And to those who have had experiences with UFOs and to ufologists, ufologists, Project Blue Book has never held much credibility and hasn't done anything to change that. I think it's obvious that, as we've already stated, and I, you know, like usual, can't keep myself from screaming out every five seconds, this Project Blue Book was nothing more than a puppet show for the public to make it seem as though they were doing some sort of investigating into the matter of UFOs, when in actuality, all they were doing was purposefully picking cases that were not legit so that they could debunk all the rest of them. Quote, unquote, debunk. Right. Not even really debunk. Not even not even remotely take them seriously. So while whenever this was declassified, everybody was freaking out because it was a huge deal that the government was telling us we were investigating UFOs. Mm-hmm. But when you look into it a little deeper, they're not, they weren't really. They were really trying to do as much as they could to not investigate it. They was like putting the captain of the football team in charge of the biggest murder investigation <laughs> this town has ever seen. Uh-huh. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm-mm. So as we know, Heineck himself said that he thought it may be naive to think that perhaps whatever these UFOs were, were being guided along by extraterrestrial life. He said he had over 100 reports of close encounters with extreme detail that he believed warranted intense investigation from the scientific community. He believed his concern for a serious study of the UFO phenomenon had become intensified by a pattern that he noted had emerged after many years of monitoring the phenomenon and the pattern suggests that something is going on. There obviously is something going on here. But later in life, he also thought that the idea that UFOs could be coming from another place in space, time, or a dimension was naive, to which I say, how dare you? (laughs) And felt that we should be looking closer to home for the answers to what these things are. What in the world does that mean, Dr. Hynek? Uh -uh. I myself am torn. Is this simply technology of our own that we are not aware of? Or are the encounters that have taken place all over the world for as long as humans have been alive encounters with an alien species? I can't help but lean towards something that we can't explain, something that ties into all paranormal phenomena that we discuss. As I continuously say, anytime we discuss these matters, they all have similar characteristics that make me think they're tied together somehow. Absolutely. And that is where we are going to end our discussion on Project Blue Book and these high-profile UFO cases that they took into consideration. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. Please go follow, go rate and review us. I know we'd usually do it at the beginning now, but go rate and review us. Share us with your friends. Share the love. We love you. Love us too. (laughs) And with that, we're going to say farewell. Have a great life. Have a great everything. Creeper real. Goodbye. Bye-bye.